Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. I'm Jody Vanson for Simi Sarah. We're live on location at the VGH and UBC Hospital Foundation Millionaire Lottery. It's the final deadline tonight. We'll get into all the details of the lottery as well as at this time of day, you're used to our hot question of the day. It is online on Twitter at Jody Vance at CKNW. You can check it out there. We'll explain that more coming up. But first, we have continuing coverage now of the plane crash that killed 176 people, including 63 Canadians, 11 Ukrainians were also on board that flight, which, as we now know, was operated by Ukraine International Airlines, of course. And now Ukraine says its investigators have been allowed access to the site uh, where that plane crashed just outside of Tehran Airport. Uh, Canada will be relying on Ukraine for help as the world tries to piece together what happened here. Now, we uh, take you live to Kiev, where global news reporter Crystal Gumansing is with the very latest in this investigation. Crystal, good to connect with you. Thanks for taking some time out. Hi, Jody. Yeah, you're welcome. It's uh, it's obviously an important story, and and people are are desperate for information, especially all of those Canadian families. So, what are you learning uh, now that you are on the ground in Kiev? Well, right now we are at the uh, Kiev International Airport, and I am just feet away from a huge mound of flowers and candles and and pictures of the Ukrainian victims from the crash PS752. Um, I have to tell you, Jody, if if you've ever gone into a flower shop and you know that smell, it's just that beautiful scent and and you kind of get all warm inside. That is the smell in the airport, and it is so disturbing because it's so sweet and nice. And then you just see the people who are coming in wave after wave in such pain, dropping off these beautiful flowers. Now, I'm imagining the photographs and the candles that were lined up. Is this um, a, a sort of the memorial that is rooted in not just the, the uh, public victims, but also I'm imagining the crew, the flight crew? Yeah, I spoke with uh, a friend of one of the flight attendants who was on this plane. Uh, he's a young man. He uh, actually found out about his friend being killed when he turned on the TV uh, on Wednesday. He he actually lives in Minsk, and he came down to Kiev to, to pay tribute today. And, and he, he stood at the memorial for a long time and just watched. And, and you know, he said for him, it's just, it's just shock. He can't believe his young friend, 24, uh, was killed in this plane crash. Now, you had mentioned earlier about sort of the latest on the investigation into this crash. Now, we heard yesterday Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and many other officials, including uh, U.S. President Donald Trump, saying, you know, it had uh, appeared that it was shot down by uh, by Iran. It was a missile attack. Iranian officials today saying, no, they didn't fire any missiles. So that is still up in the air. That is still be, being debated. Uh, Ukrainian officials did talk today a little bit about getting access to the crash site in Tehran. Uh, the 
foreign minister saying that they you know they are getting access, they are having good cooperation from from the Iranian officials on the ground, and that today they did get access to the black boxes. So that is huge. And as you said, um, you know, Canadian officials are going to be relying heavily on the Ukrainian officials to try to get answers. At least at this point, we do know that um, members of the Transportation Safety Board were granted access, told that they could have access. Uh, but as uh, as of late, our understanding is that is still in the works. So that is big news if the Ukraine government has been ac given as access to those black boxes. Do we have any timeline on when uh, the transcription might take place and where further information might be shared? No, I really don't. It's the unfortunate part about this. And it's, it is, you know, it's slow. It's, it will take time. Uh, and, and that's sort of where we're at at this point. Obviously, like you said, people are, are hoping to get answers sooner rather than later. But considering we're still debating over the cause of this, despite, um, you know, many politicians saying that they have intelligence, although Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday said he was not going to share that intelligence. But there is intelligence suggesting that, um, you know, this plane and, and all all of these victims, 176 people who were killed, were sort of caught in a dispute um, between Iran and the United States. We're with Crystal Guman, saying a global news reporter who is live in Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, what was it like for you to arrive there? What is the process uh, with regard to how you're gathering and garnering information? Uh, it, the difficulty with so many Canadians trying to get to Iran is the uh, inability to access the visas necessary. We, do, we don't have uh, an embassy there. We are in that exact same boat. We are trying. We are, um, you know, putting in as many applications, calling as many people as we possibly can, sort of pleading our case and 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 saying and trying to explain the reason why um, Canadian journalists, why Global News needs access, uh, as as much as, as you know, is is respectful and, and and reasonable to to ask for, uh, but just to try to get a sense of that we uh, we are still waiting to see if we can get visas to to enter Iran to to cover this story, getting to to Kiev wasn't necessarily hard getting flights uh, they were a little difficult but um, coming from London um, but we got here and, and like I said this this memorial just keeps getting bigger and bigger I know Ukraine's president was here yesterday yesterday was a national day of mourning you know he laid down a, a, a bouquet of condolence um, and, and many people continue to stop at this memorial and, and pay tribute whether they're just standing for a few minutes or or hugging and crying and, and leaving bouquets of flowers and small trinkets and lighting candles the human piece is so real and so visceral, particularly for Canadians coast to coast with 63 Canadians uh, dying on that flight. Uh, but the investigative piece is what the answers that so many victims really want now are so slow in coming in this in investigation. The process made ever more difficult it being in Iran and with the conflicts that you've, you've mentioned. How have Ukraine International Airlines been with uh, sharing information with you there in Kiev? It's really not coming from anyone from the airline. We're getting information from the actual government. They are trying to provide what they can, doing uh, doing updates. Uh, uh, the president of Ukraine is often known for putting stuff up on his on his Facebook page, um, and there were some some briefings earlier today, which is how we found out the um, the uh, foreign minister said that the uh, the access so far has been good, that he's been encouraged with uh, sort of the cooperation from from Iranians. Um, but it is going to be a slow process because uh, you know Iran gets to 
lead this investigation. Um, and of course, there's a lot of questions. People are wondering, well, are we going to get all the information? Uh, you know, they had access to the site uh, for several days and there was questions as to, you know, were they preserving the evidence with something being, um, you know, moved or disturbed. And so, you know, I think that there is potential for people to question at any point in this investigation whether or not we're getting um, all of the information, which ideally comes back down to the black boxes because those, um, those will tell the story. I've only got 30 seconds left, Crystal, but uh, are Ukraine officials now al aligning with what Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been saying regarding the cause of this accident? At this point, they are still saying the same thing that they have for the past couple of days, saying this is what the information suggests. They have asked um, Western officials, including Canadians, to provide access to that quote-unquote intelligence that suggested that the plane was shot down by Iranian officials. Um, that information has been handed over, as I understand it. Um, but at this point, they are um, we're still in that point of it appears that it has been, that, that language that we heard yesterday from the mm. Prime Minister. Um, so we we're still waiting for confirmation, uh, and, and that seems to be where it's at right now. No one is 100% coming out saying, you know, this plane was shot down and these people were, uh, you know, the, the victims of a, uh, of a dispute between Iran and the United States that started, um, you know, almost two weeks ago when the Americans um, attacked a, uh, a, a high-ranking Iranian general and, and killed him. Crystal, thank you so much for your time, and we look forward to connecting You're with you welcome. again. Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah, live on location at Vancouver General Hospital in the Jim Pattison Pavilion, right in the lobby. You can come by, you can say hi, you can most definitely purchase your VGH and UBC Hospital Foundation Millionaire Lottery ticket. It is the absolute final deadline at midnight tonight. If you can't make it down here, you can go to millionairelottery.com or you can call 604-602-5848. Uh, this is such an important uh, piece of the medical puzzle in British Columbia and because it, it's mu so much more than a, a lottery where you can win 2.7 million dollars tax-free you can win 2.7 million dollars tax-free but with every ticket purchased a portion of those proceeds go to changing the lives of people who truly need specialized medical care and joining us is a physician who is a big part of that he is Professor Chris Honey who is a neurosurgeon at VGH and UBC Hospital thank you for joining us what a a pleasure to join you, Jody. Thank you for having me. There's so much I want to talk to you about, but first let's talk about who you are. So uh, you've been doing research and, and first of all, where did you study? You're local, right? Yes. I Well, I did my medical school in Toronto. I, I, Canadian. A little bit, yes. A little <laughs> bit all over. A medical school in uh, Toronto, doctoral degree in Oxford, research in Harvard, and then my neurosurgery here in Vancouver. So, uh, but this is my home. And we could talk very broadly about neurosurgery because there are many arms to this, but you're very specialized in something that is close to the hearts and minds of those of us who work at CKNW in Vancouver. As our um, program director, our senior program director, Larry Gifford, is very open and, and discusses, uh, certainly on his podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's, the fact that he has young onset Parkinson's. And you you specialize in, in something that helps treat people where medication no longer works in, with regard to Parkinson's. Yes, I do the an operation called deep brain stimulation, and it can be very powerful for patients with Parkinson's, tremor, 
uh, and a variety of other conditions. How many physicians in British Columbia perform this, yeah. doctor? Yeah, just the one, unfortunately. But, uh, but there is a good side to that because uh, one guy gets to do it all and so becomes very good at it. And uh, people come from around the world to train with us because there are very few people in the world that have done as many as I have. And you're that guy. You're that good at it. So we want to make sure collectively that you have the tools and the access to the uh, ability to perform as many of these as possible. And I remember Larry doing a podcast saying that it's really tough to access because the funding and the machinery isn't there and that the government hasn't necessarily been behind it. That's changed recently, hasn't yes. it? Yes, so there's a good news story, and that is uh, the government, Minister Dix, um, saw fit to double our budget for this particular operation. And wow. so we have doubled our capability of doing this particular procedure. And in order to do that, we needed the equipment to handle that many patients. And the foundation stepped up and bought additional equipment for us specifically for this operation. So that's where the U VGH and UBC Hospital Foundation has incredibly impacted just this one group of people. It has happened on so many levels and so many arms and medically speaking across uh, the foundation's good works, but specifically here. Yeah, so in my small world, it has been a wonderful collaboration between the government funding the equipment uh, to implant into the patients, but also the surgical equipment was quickly pur purchased by the foundation in order to ramp up and allow me to do twice as many. As soon as humanly possible. Absolutely. How long does the deep brain stimulation procedure take on uh, average? Good part of a day. Good so uh, we probably um, eight hours. Uh, it's a tough day for the patients. They're awake. Um, we're operating on their brain, um, but at the end of the day, it can be incredibly life-changing for them. I have to give another plug to When Life Gives You Parkinson's because Larry Gifford just recently had a conversation with a recent patient, I'm yes. assuming of yours. Would have to be. Because it was in this <laughs> province and yeah. you're the only guy. Yeah. Um, at where he actually interviewed and said, what was it like to have somebody drilling yeah. into your brain with you awake? And he said it was noisy. Yeah, that's for sure. So what is the procedure like for somebody who wants to sort of understand your day-to-day, -day, what Dr. Chris Honey does each day? Yeah, so there's two aspects. Um, for the, there's, Let's say there's three aspects for it. One is the selecting the patient, and that is an art. It's not science, it's an art. You have to understand who the patient is, what their specific needs and wants are, and can you match them? And that is the art of medicine, and that takes decades. The surgery itself, don't tell my colleagues, but it's not particularly difficult. Come and on, it's <laughs> brain surgery, Dr. Honey. Yeah, it's brain it's, surgery. It's, it's so um, uh, computer-helped, uh, and the, the machines that we have are so precise uh, that I'm doing a lot of dialing more than actual technical finesse like we do with some of our other surgeries. Um, and so it, the, the operation itself has become uh, very good because we've done a lot of it. And the third piece, yep. if I may just yes, interact, please. the third piece is um, the volume that we have of patients coming through British Columbia has allowed us uh, tremendous growth in knowledge. Like we understand this particular procedure and our patients better than most people who are doing five or 10 a year are because we've done over 600. Wow. And so we are now discovering things that nobody knew. How long is the wait list? What is the need like? Yeah, so that is our weakness, right? The, the strength of our system, and it's a very strong system. 
is that you get your surgery, whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter who you are, and you are going to be selected for surgery by someone who has absolutely no financial interest. I'm on salary. So I will operate on you if you need it, but not if you don't. If you go south of the border, it's a whole different dynamic. And so that is our strength. You will get surgery and you'll get it if you need it. The weakness is our wait list. And on the other side of surgery, when somebody who has needed it gets the surgery that you perform, what are the results? So it can be absolutely life-changing and dramatic. So we have patients, uh, there was a recent patient, uh, Colin Blackmore, who did a, 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 a media promo for us uh, for the foundation. And this was a gentleman with a young daughter retreating from society because he couldn't function. He's now playing basketball, um, back to work, off all his medications. Wow. Yeah, it can be. Wow. We can We can take people who are off work, on disability and put them back to work so they are no longer receiving disability insurance they're actually paying taxes and that has been one of my arguments for the government to you know maybe loosen up the purse strings and allow us to do a few more because we're putting British Columbians back to work and if maybe you're a little older and you're not in the working force um, maybe your spouse can go back to work or your spouse stops being a 24-7 caregiver and you can enjoy your quality of life and then the final um, uh, level of intervention is um, we'll keep you out of nursing homes because you maintain your maybe you're not working maybe you're you know you're older um, but we'll keep you out of a nursing home because you're still independent able to look after yourself is so, there a big difference doctor honey between young onset and 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 Parkinson's as we've known it to be yes, more yes, an age yes so issue? the 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 young we're learning more and more about the there are some genes that predispose you to Parkinson's. About 15% of Parkinson's is a genetic disorder, and they're usually the young onset ones. But they sometimes progress slower than their older counterparts. Okay. So they're in a bit of a trouble because they're going to have the disease for a very long time, but they're in a bit of a better situation because the, the slope of decay is slower. So when we intervene, we can keep them mobile, um, and active in terms of their daily living activities longer. So the results could be, are they equal? And it, it's a different disease. Totally different disease. I know disease. it's all Parkinson's, but every single patient with Parkinson's is slightly different than the next patient. And one of the, the joys is getting to know our individual patients, but also one of the difficulties is, is really understanding that individual patient because their demands are different than the next person. And we need to know what they want to be able to do before we can say, yeah, you know what, I can, I could probably deliver that with the surgery. Or, right. geez, that's, I don't think I can, I can deliver that, what you're asking with the surgery. You should, you should maybe not think about it. That's the piece that makes you the artist. I want to get yeah. in here that you're hosting the Third World Congress on MVD neurosurgery in Vancouver this summer. What's that about? So MVD is an op is completely different from deep brain stimulation. It's the other area. It is the technical maestro of, of neurosurgery where um, we do surgery near the brainstem uh, on blood vessels that are pinching nerves and a pinched nerve hurts or malfunctions. And there is an operation, MVD or microvascular decompression, and the audience uh, uh, should know that um, the probably the 100 best neurosurgeons in the world uh, are going to come to Vancouver. I'm going to host them. 
and we are going to have a meeting out at UBC to discuss various aspects of this condition. And during that meeting, we are going to introduce the world to two new uh, diseases that uh, were discovered here in Vancouver and, and treated by our team. Wow. So, yeah. And when is that happening? Uh, July 10 to 12, 2020. Okay, we're going to need to stay on top of that because that's a news story, well, certainly. Well, we'd love to tell you about it. Uh, we'd love to tell you about it. Well, yeah. book it. <laughs> book it because okay. I want that. Uh, Chris, thank you for your time Oh, what today. a pleasure, Jody. Thank you for hosting. I'm Jody Vanson for Simi Sarah. So uh, Claire Allen and I have our own hot question of the day. Claire is with me on location here at Vancouver General Hospital. It is the VGH and UBC Hospital Foundation Millionaire Lottery final deadline at midnight tonight. If you want to get in on that and you uh, want to do so from your desk or wherever you're listening, millionairelottery.com or 604-602-5848. That's 602-5848. Uh, know your limit. Play within it, of course. Uh, I like this uh, you texted me late last night because um, the Bank of Canada is talking about how they're working on a new $5 bill. Yeah, that's right. So yesterday, uh, the Bank of Canada Governor Stephen Polos was in Vancouver giving a speech, and he said that the central bank is working on plans for a new $5 bill, and he said they're going to be launching public consultations about who should appear on that bill. And so Claire decided that last night we are launching the public <laughs> consultation. We are the official public we consultation. Are, well, you just, t you tossed out. Who, who are your, I don't know. Who's your top five? Five? Yeah. And I was like, okay, off the top of my head, who well, would wait, that hold, be? Let's wait. Right. Till you, well, I know you've tweeted out your picks. Yes. But we'll start talking about who we think. Yes, but, you know, I want yours. I was thinking, I gotta go live, I gotta survey the public. I yes. gotta figure out what they want. And I, I got a lot of responses. But first, let's go over some of the conditions. Okay, before conditions. We get to okay. So okay. apparently the nominee has to be a historical figure who has passed away. Um, right. but for our purposes, Jody, let's open it up to some living Canadians. We can too, do whatever right? we want. Yeah, there. exactly. Yeah. So I hit the streets, I asked some people who they'd like to see on the five dollar bill, and here are some of the responses I've got, but I must say, they're pretty varied. I was really surprised. Okay. So let's take a listen. All right. Who would you like to see on the Canadian $5 bill? Probably a popular opinion, but I think it should be Terry Fox. I've said to people before that I'm going to do my very best to make it. I'm not going to give up, and that's true. But I might not make it, and if I don't make it, the marathon of hope better continue. He's a Canadian icon, and through his legacy, he has inspired so many others to never give up against their fight against cancer, and has also raised millions of dollars for cancer research. I would like to see Haley Wickenheiser on the new Canadian $5 bill. It was the greatest honor of my life to play for Canada, and I will never forget the time I had. Because all she's done for women in sports in Canada, especially for young girls in hockey. David Suzuki because of his climate change activism. Who would you like to see on the Canadian $5 bill? I'm gonna give you two answers. I'm gonna do uh, one deceased and I'm gonna say Emily Carr and one living and this would be in a dream world, Joni Mitchell. It always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay for a life, put up a parking lot. Who would you vote for to appear on the new Canadian $5 bill? Mike Myers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Who would you like to see on the Canadian $5 bill? Harjit Sajjan because he's Canada's first Sikh Minister of National Defense and the first Sikh Canadian to command a Canadian Army Reserve regiment yeah i would pick drake he is a very influential proud canadian artist 
that has paved the way for many other young Canadian artists to break into the industry. Who would you like to see on the Canadian $5 bill? Nardwar the human serviette. Keep on rocking in the free world and do 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 do. I would pick Rick Hansen because he's what true Canadians are all about. It's symbolic of uh, what man can do uh, when he believes in something, uh, when he works together as a team and of course perseveres over time. And that's what our tour is all about. He attained goals like no other. He made you feel that you could achieve any goal, no matter if you were fully body-abled or in a wheelchair like himself. To me, he is Mr. Canada. Certainly varied. Yeah. My goodness, was that uh, Dave Bachner who? I don't want to, you know, reveal. Anybody. Oh yeah, that's our engineer Dave, <laughs> who's right here with us. Really? What would you think about having Drake's face on the phone? Did you see my reaction? Was it visceral enough for you? I was like, oh hell no. I imagine the ego boost. See, if you were alive and seeing your own face on the currency, like right. you might as well just name yourself king or queen. <laughs> you might as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, so the, the diversity piece is big. Mm-hmm. It is real. And uh, Gord Randall on Twitter, because the hot question of the day is about this and it is up. And he brought a good point. Should it not be an indigenous person? You know, that is something that I've heard from other people on Twitter is that may, that it, it would be nice to have an indigenous uh, representative on our currency. Um, you know, there's certainly a lot of Canadians that we could nominate for this prestigious Definitely. honor. So I just thought, you know, Let's do our top five, Jody. Okay, I want yours okay. first because I get to Jeez. put mine on Twitter. But okay, <laughs> I was gonna say you're the host; you can go first. No, no, no. Oh, the pressure's on for me. Okay, so <laughs> number one is Terry Fox. Okay, this isn't in order. These are just five people, no matter. No not, particular yeah, order. Exactly. Got it. Number two, I'd go for Nellie McClung, suffragette. Uh, She got the right to vote uh, from women in Manitoba in 1916, making it the first province in the country to allow it. I love her. This is also, this one I think is probably like the closest to the top for me. Dr. Frederick Banting. He is, uh, he literally improved the lives of millions of Canadians. He was fascinated with diabetes. And so his medical research in the 1920s led to the invention of uh, synthetic insulin so, I mean, that is something that has improved the lives of millions of Canadians and if not people around the world. And in 1923, he was awarded with the Nobel Prize in Medicine, becoming the first Canadian to win one in any field. Whoa. That's good. Uh, so t- Now t- I wish he was on my list. Too bad. Too bad. You're very <laughs> smart and you do your no, research, Well, Clara I don't know. You do. uh, and then I picked Tommy Douglas, uh, obviously, because he believed that every Canadian deserved the right to quality health care, regardless of their economic or social situation. And then to round it out, I put Emily Carr at top five, because I like her. I think she's a great uh, Canadian representative. Incredibly iconic artist. Totally. Certainly. And inspiration for so many artists, globally speaking. Uh, she's on my list I'm as well. Nice. Um, so this is at Jody Vance on Twitter. I put it at Simi Sarah as well at CKNW. You can uh, vote uh, and be a part of it. Or you can tell us who your pick for the $5 bill should be. Because the hot question of the day is, who should be on the new Canadian $5 bill? In no particular order, these are mine. Gord Downey. Nice. Terry Fox. Of course. Emily Carr. All right. 
and I'm a member at his legion, Billy Bishop. I learned all about him this year because I did a piece for the Neighborhood series on him. What an amazing guy. An amazing, amazing. I, I think we're blessed as uh, a country to have so many worthy mm-hmm. of such an honor. Totally. You're right. And I think this is a really fun exercise for people to do with their family because I actually learned a lot doing my research last night. You know, I'm going to put it out there. Maybe I sound a little a little dumb, but I didn't know a lot about Dr. Frederick Banting until I read about him last night. And I was just like, how amazing. I don't think you're dumb at all. <laughs> I, think what, I think what's going on here is when you do have these sorts of conversations that are lost when we all spend so much time surfing social media on our devices, yeah. we lose these little pieces of the puzzle and learning about Dr. Banting and his contributions to the world. Massive. Yeah, exactly. Massive. And I mean, what a nice way to honor someone, whether it is Terry Fox, Dr. Banting, Nelly McClung, Laura Secord, Billy, Billy Bishop, anyone. What a nice way to honor them by putting them on our $5 bill. Laura Secord was in my top five. I saw. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we have 447 votes so far in our hot question of the day. 70% of those votes, no surprise, Terry Fox. I mean, it. he's a great choice. And I, you were when we were speaking, you said that somebody said he deserves to be on a, a higher denomination. That's a right. A of a higher denomination. On Twitter, Amrit said, Emily Carr should go on the five, Terry Fox, the 50. Yeah, he's really inspiring. And I know I was listening to Simi this morning and she says, you know, as she... Uh, progresses in her life and I feel the same way as I get older when I watch footage of him and just uh, wrap my head around how young he was when he was going across Canada and talking about cancer at a time when people really didn't talk a lot about cancer it's just amazing my mom's alive because of him wow because of early detection because of the conversations that are had surrounding Mm -hmm. um, getting checked she's a two-time now colon cancer survivor due to early detection and I fully credit Terry Fox if you have not read his um, biography that was written written by somebody who traveled on that Marathon of Hope with him, mm-hmm. but used pieces of Terry's own diary. I highly recommend this as a read. You'll eat it up wow. um, as a Canadian. I digress, though. Hit up our, our hot question of the day. Let us know who you think should be on the Canadian $5 bill. This is our public consultation that we're doing via CKNW here. Um, and you can call us in the next segment. We're going to take your calls at 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. Who you would like to see added to the $5 bill. Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah. Glad you're along for the ride today because today might change your life. If you get yourself a millionaire lottery ticket, a, a VGH and UBC Hospital Foundation millionaire lottery ticket, tonight at midnight is the final deadline, the absolute final deadline. Up for grabs? How about 2.7 million tax free? There are eight grand prize options and the woman who is at the forefront of this the president and ceo of the vgh and ubc hospital foundation joins us now angela chapman thanks for being with us thanks for having me jody we have been hearing stories about how this lottery truly impacts our medical system here in british columbia we had dr christopher honey on earlier he he was so forthcoming of how the foundation works in conjunction with our hospitals with with the government even with regard to deep brain stimulation i didn't know this when dr honey was saying the the one specialty that he does the only person who does that in this province uh 
he had his ability doubled to help people in in one governmental decision and the foundation immediately stepped up tell us about totally the workings of that the inner work happy to so doctor i'm so glad you had a chance to talk to dr chris honey it's an example of he's one of many people who are the specialists for all of british columbia that sit here at vgh and who operate out at ubc hospital as well and it's an example his is an example where the foundation often is coming into these projects funding equipment funding programs funding research that then leads to the government stepping in and funding something uh, we are the ones that take that risk we take that gamble uh, and thanks to the donors our many donors and thanks to people who buy the lottery tickets we're able to make those kind of investments that really move the needle on health care that gives me goosebumps it's a it's an amazing thing life-changing absolutely and saves lives thousands and thousands and thousands of lives are changed and we're actually gonna have a patient on in a little bit oh, to wonderful. talk about his experience and how this is significantly impacted and helped him uh, but it comes back to getting in on the lottery it takes one ticket to win this right that's it you want to buy a ticket to win one opportunity and we want to be clear because they're the, obviously we've got some weather issues so if you were planning on maybe going uh, to the White Rock home you can it's open the Langley home not open Okay. today so just the white rock home or here that's where you buy in person you can buy online millionairelottery.com or you can of course call the number that you know so well thanks to todd talbot 604-602-5848 604-602-5848 again millionairelottery.com to buy online two tickets for a hundred dollars five for 175 10 for 250 or you can get 25 tickets for $500 so that's me calling my friends going let's do this <laughs> right <laughs> why wouldn't we Claire yes I'm looking at you I'm looking at you um, so let's dive in a little bit more on the specifics because people say okay VGH UBC Hospital Foundation I get that but it's more than just those two locations right? absolutely we have GF Strong Rehabilitation Center which is the center for actually British Columbia and uh, the Yukon uh, for people who who are rehabilitated from brain injuries and spinal cord injuries. So really helping people get their life back after such a traumatic uh, event in their lives. And, uh, and it also supports the Vancouver Coastal Health Research Institute. A lot of medical research is done here. We have tremendous world-class centers, both for ovarian cancer, prostate cancer, just as an example, yeah, so yeah. many others. And we also support community health. So, you know, one of the solutions to the burden of our, our healthcare system in the acute system is very expensive. We need to move, push more of that out to the community and do things more people at home, taking care of people at home as well, all part of the Vancouver Community Health. So we support that very broad range of projects with equipment, with people, uh, and with research that's so fundamental to move healthcare for, for all British Columbians. Now, tell us a little bit about you. I did this sure. to Chris Honey as well, to Dr. Honey. How did you get involved with VGH and UBC Hospital Foundation? Well, interestingly, I grew up in Vancouver. Uh, I left here to go to university. I stayed away for 27 years, and I worked largely with universities, very much uh, focused on, on research, education. It was a real passion of mine. But seven years ago, uh, there came an opportunity to come back and work for VGH and UBC Hospital and move into the healthcare field. I was At that point, I was living in Singapore. Wow. So very happy to come home. Welcome, uh, welcome. And <laughs> so excited the last seven years getting to know the healthcare system, getting to really appreciate our challenges that we face and the role that a foundation and philanthropy can play has been so exciting and so meaningful. And I look forward to the next many years of, of doing the same. Science. 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 
Now, Science with Simi. Eureka! I'm Jody Vanson for Simi Sarah. It's a new year and a new decade. And to mark the occasion, SpaceX has begun a campaign to launch thousands of new satellites into space. The project is known as Starlink. It's aiming to offer high-speed internet access from space with the goal of connecting remote areas to the rest of the world. Now, there's a lot of excitement surrounding Starlink, but there's also been a lot of criticism from astronomers and astrophysicists who are concerned about what these satellite constellations mean for future observations. Dr. Dave Clements is an astrophysicist from Imperial College in London, and he says that the satellite constellations present two major issues. First of all, from the optical side, these satellites reflect sunlight. Um, It's kind of like having something at the top of a very tall mountain, 400 kilometers high, uh, which can reflect sunlight. These satellites will reflect light over maybe an hour or two before sunrise or after sunset and will present themselves as visible moving dots on the sky. These, and there's going to be a lot of them, these will be a foreground, so something that, we, that, that you observe with a telescope between whatever you want to see and the Earth. So depending on what you're, what you're observing, uh, and this is the case for large area surveys such as the ones that are going to be done with uh, telescopes being built at the moment, and some of which are in Canada, like Dragonfly 2, uh, and some are in Chile, uh, the largest optic survey telescope, for example, uh, aims to observe the entire night sky every five days down to very sensitive levels. And obviously, if you've got this constellation of satellites flying in front of the universe, which, which is what LSST wants to observe, um, then they will get in the way, they'll give you false detections and will muddy data and make it difficult to see the things that LSST is actually trying to detect, which range from potentially hazardous asteroids that might hit us all the way to some of the most distant objects in the universe. So it has a potential effect over a very large range of scientific topics on the optical. Dr. Clement says the other major concern is the issue the satellites present for radio astronomy. Radio astronomy is the subfield of astronomy that studies celestial objects at radio frequencies. Dr. Clements is concerned that the radio frequencies from these satellites will overpower the frequencies that the astronomers are observing. These satellites, since they're going to be providing internet service anywhere on the planet, obviously have to communicate between somebody's handset and the satellite itself. That will be done through radio. And between the satellite and ground stations, again through radio, and from one satellite to another to pass data around. And all of that will be potentially detectable by radio telescopes. Uh, And obviously, since these are man-made bright sources, they're going to be a lot more powerful than than the radio sources that we're actually interested in. And whilst there are a range of very small frequency bands that are protected for radio astronomy, uh, modern radio telescopes, to get to the sensitivities that they need to reach, use much wider bands than that. And some of the currently relatively unused for commercial purposes space that radio telescopes are working in will be occupied by these, these new satellites. 
Um, and the details, the implications for that are really not quite clear yet because it will depend on what the transmission the communication method they're using is. Uh, a lot of artificial signals from radio uh, communication satellites at the moment are very narrow bands, so you can filter those out. But because you want to give high-speed internet access using these devices to potentially lots and lots of users uh, over a large area of, of the surface of the Earth, you'll be using what's known as spread-spectrum techniques, which mean that you'll be broadcasting over a much wider range of frequencies than, than conventional systems. So the implications for radio astronomy are quite bad. Dr. Clement says that for astronomers and astrophysicists, one of the most shocking and frustrating parts of these satellite launches is the lack of consultation from companies like SpaceX. There's a number of threats uh, to different branches of astronomy, um, which really have not been fully assessed as the... Uh, the, I believe the president of the company that's uh, putting these satellites up was quoted recently as saying, uh, when talking about problems that these satellites present for astronomy, we didn't really think of that. This is actually characteristic of uh, your, the Silicon Valley mindset of move fast and break things. In response to this criticism, companies like OneWeb and SpaceX have said that they plan to work with international astronomers to minimize the impact of these satellites. But Dr. Clements actually has his doubts. Well, there, there are several different companies doing this, and I, I know that OneWeb is trying to take a rather different approach. They haven't launched anything yet, and I know that there are some discussions taking place, and they, they do say a lot of... Um, positive words about being responsible users of space. Um, I can't say that there's much evidence of that on the SpaceX side. Uh, they've, um, in the most recent launch, which happened uh, just a day or so ago, another 60 satellites went up. They've painted one of these black to see if that can change things with the uh, reflectivity issue. Um, Speaking of somebody who's got a, a bit of experience with uh, spacecraft engineering, that's a very strange thing to do. It changes the thermal characteristics of the satellite completely um, and may bring other problems. Now, they may have modelled that, but they're not saying anything about that. Um, and you know, one out of 180 satellites, they've finally decided that they're going to try and do something post hoc. It's really not, not enough. Um, they say that they're, they're, they're tra taking the Silicon Valley attitude of, oh, we'll fix it in, in release 2.0. Well, that might work if you've got a slightly buggy um, connection or uh, um, something that's not displaying right on your mobile phone. But these are satellites that are going to sit up there, the, the 180, sorry, I should say 179, because one of them's painted black. Um, are going to sit up there for, for several years, causing a problem, whether the black painting works or not. And so release 2.0, which might be black satellites, if that solves the problem. I, I actually find it unlikely that it will. Um, release 1.0 is still going to be up there for a long time, uh, causing problems. So, yes, they're, they're, they're really doing too little too late. And they should have been talking to us uh, a long time ago and should have been thinking about this as a problem. But if SpaceX had been paying 
attention to all of this, they'd have known that there was a problem. It would not have come as a surprise and they would have thought of it before launching the satellites they've already launched. So the goal of SpaceX's Starlink program is to have a fleet of 12,000 satellites in space by the mid-2020s. So will the company and astronomers be able to reach a compromise by then? Stargazers will have to, well, keep looking up to find out. I'm Jody Vance. I thank Claire Allen for putting together Science with Simi, as she always does. Great research, great interviewing uh, there. Jody Vance in for Simi and on location at the VGH and UBC Hospital Foundation Millionaire Lottery. Final deadline, midnight tonight. We're at the Jim Pattison Pavilion, level one at VGH. Come visit us, grab yourself a ticket, and maybe, just maybe, you win $2.7 million tax-free. Again, the, the final deadline, absolute final tonight at midnight. So updating the BC storm. It's a messy day on the roads in Metro Vancouver. Uh, let's get some main information and any hotspots now from Ian Hardacre, our AM 730 traffic anchor. Ian, thanks for being with us. Oh, glad to be here, Jody. Always a pleasure. So take us on a little bit of a tour. I'm hearing <laughs> the, I'm hearing the uh, traffic updates and it's not typical to hear major backups at 12.07 p.m. Not usually, no, uh, but uh, seeing huge, huge delays for the Alex Fraser today because of falling ice off the cables there. Uh, right now, they've got only one lane open northbound and two lanes open southbound. That's been the case for... Uh, a little over an hour now. They actually just opened that second lane southbound, so that's going to hopefully hopefully help ease the backlog somewhat. But, yeah, with the volume uh, backed up to about 72nd northbound and Westminster Highway southbound, it is far from a typical uh, afternoon on the roads. The one thing I will say is that the morning rush, as bad as it was, I think a lot of people probably chose to stay home today, it being a Friday and all. That probably worked in uh, our favor a little bit. But, uh, you know, that's just the silver lining. For the most part, the Alex Fraser's been a mess all day. And the Port Man is actually open in both directions, even though we've had reports of um, ice bombs falling off the cables on the Port Man as well. So uh, the HOV lane is closed eastbound. Uh, but still, be very aware of that, uh, that, uh, yeah, you could <laughs> got to keep your head up as you're uh, making your way to or from the Portman Bridge. No kidding. And I, is it just me or is it unusual that the ice bombs are falling on the Alex Fraser? We've sort of become accustomed to that happening on the Portman Bridge, the new build there. But has the Alex Fraser Bridge always had this issue as well? It hasn't been unheard of. It, it has happened in previous years. The last couple of winters, uh, we never really got snowed on all that badly and it wasn't so much an issue. But uh, you might remember going back, I think, three years ago now, the winter then... Um, I guess that would be 2017. Uh, they did have to close down the Alex Fraser for a period of time, and that, that was actually an ongoing issue for uh, several days in a row, actually, where they had to shut it down you know, for a couple of hours in the middle of the day. So doing very much what, like what they're doing today. So it's not totally unprecedented. Is it affecting uh, traffic at the Massey Tunnel at all with the backup at the Alex Fraser northbound? Yes, yes. The tunnel is busier northbound right now. Uh, northbound's uh, backed up to about the 17A uh, with two lanes getting through there. And southbound, not as bad. Two lanes getting through in that direction as well. And again, normally this time of day, you would expect, unless there was a, a crash or something like that, you would expect uh, the volume to be flowing pretty smoothly there. That's not so much the case. But if you have to choose, uh, the Massey Tunnel is still the best bet. If it's an option for you, the Patello Bridge is also a good option. That one is moving fairly well in both directions. Uh, so you can take that as well. All right. We'll stay tuned in. Thanks for this, Ian. Anytime.
That is Ian Hardacre, AM730 traffic anchor, and it is so messy out there. The weather making it difficult for drivers all over, as we were just discussing. But one of those poor souls in the car that's been dinged up is Alex Kerrigan. He's another AM730 traffic anchor, and today he's making the traffic news. But we're going to make you make it and report it as you've been in. What, what sort of crash happened? Alex, welcome to the show, and tell us what's happening. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, a little bit of double dose AM730. Uh, well, I'm, I'm happy to report that it's not necessarily a crash. Uh, it almost Good. was. I'll get to that in a quick second. But uh, you got a, uh, a vehicle in the ditch on 99 northbound before the 152 overpass. No lanes are blocked off, but it's a big visual distraction. And this driver's reminding you to uh, slow down out there and drive to conditions. Right. People think the speed limit is meant for all conditions and that is just simply not the case are people still driving around without their headlights on uh, as snow continues to fall well i'm happy to see a lot of headlights and taillights on but you're exactly right jody people see that number and they think that's the base number all the time like there should always be going at 90 100 kilometers an hour i always drive 140 what's this going to slow me down uh those people are probably going to get a swift reminder right about now. Um, yeah. It's, I, I don't have words for it, but it's. Um, I am happy to see a lot of headlights and taillights on. At least I'm seeing that. So what happened to you when you were driving along today? So I was, uh, I just, I was trying to pass somebody, and I probably should not have done that sitting here thinking about it. It was the worst thing I could have done. Um and I started to swerve over to the left. Obviously, instincts kick in. You try to swerve over um, to the right, and that just brings you further to the left. I was next to a car as well. So my first instinct was, okay, I'm just going to own this. This is going to be on me. I'm not going to make this a two-car collision. If, I'm end up in the di- if I end up in the ditch, that's on me. This person's going to go where yeah. they need to go. And that's kind of how it happened is I just made sure that – um, that it was just me dealing with this, not another car dealing with it with me. Defensive driving, it's a good thing. And owning it when you may be in the wrong. Alex Kerrigan, thank you for uh, checking in with us and sharing your tale of perhaps going under the speed limit in the conditions currently. Thanks, pal. Yeah, learn from my mistake, everyone. Thank you very much for having me on, Jody. Of course. And we've been hearing about the ice bombs, as Alex uh, and Ian have both mentioned. Alex Fraser Bridge, a Portman Bridge, both have this systemic issue with the ice bombs. Well, we're going to bring on a listener now who was actually impacted literally by an ice bomb. Steve Slutweg is with us. Steve, welcome to the show. Hi. How you doing? What happened? Well, I was just uh, making my way, uh, you know, under the speed limit across the Fort Man, they can uh, take the through uh, the uh, Surrey uh, through lanes, and uh, all of a sudden, uh, my vehicle was struck twice. Quite large impacts. One right in front of me on the hood, and one actually came through the windshield on the passenger side. Left a quite no. a impact mark and glass all through my vehicle, all the way to the back seat. It was it was uh, pretty pretty scary, but lucky at the same time that it was on the passenger side. But, uh, wow, yeah. Steve, very, uh, what did you do when that happened? Well, I, I, I didn't want to panic because uh, there was snow and slush on the highway, so I just slowed down um, and just made my way off the Portman Bridge, and as soon as I could pull over, I pulled over and uh, and just gathered myself. <laughs> and, okay. uh, and then I, I returned uh, back to my yard and just uh, parked the vehicle for the day so we can get it fixed up. 
you never uh, know at the start of your day what might happen when you're just cruising yeah, along. That's for sure. Never thought it would happen to me. <laughs> well, Steve, we're grateful that uh, you were not injured and certainly that there was nobody in the passenger seat of your car. Yeah, that would have been uh, a bad day for them, for their eyeballs, for sure. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for sharing your story. And as I said, I'm really glad you're okay. Thank you. Make it a great day. That's Steve Slootweg, a listener who had his car hit by an ice bomb on the Portman Bridge. Be careful out there. Uh, I kind of Miami Vice that a little bit, but it is an ice problem. Uh, let's find out how long we might be dealing with this, or are we only just feeling the tip of this iceberg? Christy Gordon, Global <laughs> News Senior Meteorologist, uh, joining us now on the line. Christy, hello. Hi, Jody. What a busy day for you. Oh, my gosh. It has been. I worked late last night as well, just sort of tracking it as it moved in. But uh, the snowfall totals pretty good in some areas, up to about 11 centimeters in some areas like a North Surrey. But on average, it was about four to five across the region. And it was just so wet that we really couldn't get those numbers accumulating. But that's what created the problems on the roads. Just complete slush and mess through much of the morning commute. It no, is that uh, mucky. It's that mucky weather that we get on in on the south coast that it makes yeah. the driving conditions so bad. What are we looking at in terms mm. of, you know, it's raining now where we are at VGH. Mm-hmm. We're looking out. It's just sort of uh, misty, drizzly, but it, it's been snowing pretty consistently. Is that all going to freeze up overnight? What are we looking at? No. So the good news is the worst is over for today. We're really seeing a transition now towards warmer weather. As an example, in Victoria right now, they're already at five degrees. We are going to continue to warm up through the afternoon hours. We could actually reach a high of about six degrees. And then overnight, uh, temperatures are only going to drop down likely to about three, two or three degrees. So we're not expecting a freeze. And then the rain that we'll see for the remainder of the day today will likely wash a lot of this snow away. Uh, the winds are also starting to die down. That's been a problem in a, num- a number of areas across south metro Vancouver, certainly areas near the water. We've seen gusts up to 75 kilometers an hour. So it was both a snow and a wind event across the lower mainland. But yes, definitely the worst is over. Conditions starting to die down or transition to rain. The next uh, major thing that we're watching is actually tomorrow morning, Jody. Uh, the low pressure center itself is going to cross our region overnight. And in behind those, we tend to get a really strong westerly wind so we could be seeing westerly winds up to 80 kilometers an hour through the morning tomorrow these will likely uh, cause power outages and right now we already have uh, several thousand without power across the lower mainland vancouver island as well and i'm expecting more power outages again tomorrow the good news with that is that we are looking at dry weather tomorrow we actually are should be seeing some sunshine throughout the day Certainly, we need to be mindful if we're uh, going to be planning on using the ferries when the winds are gusting at those levels, exactly. as you mentioned. Christy, with the power outages, uh, Simon Little uh, sent us some stats, now up to 12,000 power outages in the lower mainland Sunshine Coast. Lots in Abbotsford, Langley, Mission, 5,000 on southern Vancouver Island. Uh, so we could be looking at an increase there. And certainly, mm-hmm. uh, if you don't need to be out in this weather and in those winds, it, stay close to home. I think that's the message here. Right. And so, yeah, as you're saying, so I would recommend if you have to go BC Ferries, 
later tomorrow would be better. Uh, Likely not in the morning hours, that's for sure. And then the next big event that we're watching is on Sunday. On Sunday, we're expecting the temperatures to drop throughout the day. So we may see this system start as a mix of rain and snow, like we did with this last one. But instead of it transitioning back to rain and becoming a sloppy mess, it's going to stay as snow through potentially the afternoon and evening hours and stay really cold through much of next week. So that snow will turn to ice, it will stay frozen, and your Monday morning commute could be a really tricky one. Well, I'm in for Simi all next week, Christy Gordon, so get ready. I'll be talking to you. If we're looking at highs (laughs) in the minus numbers, I will need your advice. All right? Sounds good. I'll be here for you. I'm Jody Vance in for Simi, and we're on location at uh, Vancouver General Hospital in the Jim Pattison Pavilion for the VGH and UBC Hospital Foundation Millionaire Lottery. Now, you know about this lottery, right? You can you can win $2.7 million tax-free. You hear Todd Talbot talking about it, millionairelottery.com, 604-602-5848, the number to call if you'd like to purchase a ticket or a number of tickets. And then you think, okay, I could win. This be great. It's fun. Where do the proceeds go? How, what's the human impact of this? How does it give back to our community? Well, our next guest can explain that in spades. Uh, Jonathan Sedman joins us. Uh, You may remember Jonathan's story. He was the pyrotechnic professional setting up fireworks at Saratoga Speedway on Vancouver Island. Is it Black Creek? Uh, Yeah, Black Creek. Black Creek. Um, Tell us what happened that day. Um, Basically, I'd gone down to set up the show. I'd done it for many years, many shows. And uh, we set the show. We got it all ready to go. Um, And uh, the races started. And uh, it started raining. And I went out to put a piece of um, plastic tarp over it just to protect them. And, uh, yeah, that's when everything happened right then and there. And the everything that happened is a car in the race went over the fence and literally landed on you. Yeah, apparently um, apparently I was conscious and telling them to go with the show and I was fine. And, and, and then I guess I started saying stuff. I don't remember any of it. I, I have total zero memory of it, all I remember is is kind of opening my eyes, seeing some peop- some kind of faint people in the background, and hearing you're you're at the hospital, you're at VGH, and 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 that was basically. So you were brought to VGH, obviously an emergency case. Uh, your wife at the time, eight months pregnant. Yep, that's right. Your yep. family races to Vancouver General Hospital. Your wife is here at the hospital, and then realizes. She goes into, she's, she's got contractions. And, she's going uh, into labor. Yeah, and uh, basically they wanted to, to take her, and she was like, no, no, I'm, I need to be here for John. Yeah. And then once I see him, then I'll. What an incredibly stressful time. Oh, yeah. my gosh, John. It must have been just, I remember watching and following along on the story. Um, were you put into an induced coma? Um, I believe so, yes, for yeah. two weeks. And, and your, your son was not named for those two weeks. You, you obviously were not awake for the birth of your child. No, we had discussed a few names, but we hadn't nailed it right down um, to it. So um, she decided she wanted to wait. So How, how did she... No. When you woke up, what happened? Um, I, I woke up and I had all sorts of tubes and stuff. And um, I believe she was in the room. And she had basically said, uh, you know, uh, uh, our son was born. And, of course, I couldn't speak. And, you know, I'm trying to get details and, and you know, more and more. And, and she basically said, you know, he was, he was born. You know, everything's okay. 
it's, well, it's all good. Oh, that, and what a relief that is. Yeah, now, yeah, what sure. was your state physically and health wise at th- at that time? What um, was your what was your diagnosis or prognosis at that moment? Um, I was pretty messed up at that point. Like I said, I had tubes in my mouth, tubes in my chest. Um, I couldn't really talk. I had to communicate science, kind of some sort of language form with my sister when she came in. Um, and and it was, you know, I didn't know if I was going to walk again or, or what the state of my injuries were going to be. And clearly, you're sitting before me, and I would never have known you've had a catastrophic injury such as that, what you just explained. What was the journey like, and how did the VGH and UBC Hospital Foundation help you? Um, well... I um I was in the hospital and uh, and uh, when I was in the ICU there was a nurse that brought in a TV because obviously you know you're just looking at the wall and uh, she brought a TV in and and was like oh I got some CDs here and you know and okay you you, you want to watch this or, or Terminator and it was like okay I'll watch Terminator and uh, you know that helped pass the time and that that really stuck out in my in my head yeah um and then. Um, just you know being in the hospital um i guess when they called my parents you know where do you want him taken and my mom said vgh you know that's the that's the place that he needs to go yeah you know and i mean without without everybody's support you know i may not may not have been here today right i mean there's you know all the specialized equipment you know i think i had 12 different doctors from i think it was 10 different specialties working on me at the same time wow john Um, so it was uh yeah so you know uh, who knows i might not have been here if i had gone to a different hospital did you have rehabilitation time at GF Strong? Um, no, I ended up going around to a couple of different hospitals. Um, and then I, I went into kind of a care home facility um, because I wasn't able to walk or put pressure on my legs until after Christmas. This is 15 months ago. Yeah. It's a remarkable recovery. Yeah, it it it, it didn't feel like that. No. We, we had... We had fair, uh, fair enough. We had, we had me and my wife. We had, you know, some good nights, some bad nights. You know, there was a lot of uh, FaceTime video between me and her, and and you know, watching my son, and and you know, she'd cry and I'd cry, and you know, it, we were wishing that it was all over, and I would, uh, you know, get home, and and eventually I did, and then and then I went from uh, having to use a, a full walker, um, and we'd put my son in a, in a little basket, and I'd be able to push him around, and then I ended up going to one-handed walker and being able to carry him to eventually, uh, you know, kind of wheelchair and then to full walking. How, how, how old was he when you got to come home? Um, well, I came home in the middle of March, so... October, November, December, January, February, March? So six five, months. Five, six five, months? Five, six yeah. months, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And before that, you could feel your emotion when you said, you know, the, the difficult uh, days and nights, and certainly for your wife, who was the primary caregiver for yep. you and for the child yep. and your family, your family's here, your mom and your dad are here. I call them the paparazzi because they're so lovingly looking out for you. Uh, it really is a full team effort. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, um, uh, my niece and my nephew came, you know, with, with my, uh, my, uh, my girlfriend and, uh, my niece, she fainted when, when she saw me with and, the tubes uh, and yeah, yeah, just, just me coming. Yeah. When I came in for, from, on um, off the hosp on the off the uh the speedway yeah speedway yeah yeah oh i bet yeah so if somebody is listening right now who is uh struggling to recover to as i said looking at you i would never know that you had been in such a horrific accident um 
and yet you've lived it. You've got the scars on your heart yeah. and, 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 and you remember it. So if somebody's going through and struggling to recover in that way, being supported by UBC, uh, uh, VGH and UBC Hospital Foundation, maybe, do you have advice that you would give them? Um, you just got to take it a day at a time and, uh, and basically, you know, have that support. Um, from the hospital, everybody helping at the hospital, and yeah. your family, and 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 whatnot. You know, my son, um, you know, was a big inspiration. You know, to try and push through, and, and my wife, you know, she was there. Yeah. To uh, you know, to say that you know we can do this. Let's we'll get there. We'll get there. You get there one day yeah. at a time. One yeah. Florence Nightingale Terminator TV moment at a yeah, time. Basically, and we we yeah. came back about a year later, and we donated uh, two TVs and about twenty DVDs to the IC, ICU unit. Um, and because uh, that was a big, that was a big thing that stuck out of my head was just that one nurse. I actually said to my sister, you know, get her name because I want to, you know, donate the TVs in her name and, and see her. And my, my sister thought I was nuts because of all the drugs. Did you find her? No, we didn't really figure out who it was. But, uh, but we if you're listening, John Sedman would like to know <laughs> who you are. But we Florence ended up, Nightingale. yeah, we ended up dropping off the TVs and the DVDs. And that was a big thing. Um, and then the foundation came and asked me to. You know, if we could, you know, help them do some fundraising stuff and, and that, you know, the hospital did so much for me, uh, you know, it's the least I can do. Building the awareness yeah. and giving back and everybody listening can yeah. give back just by buying a lottery ticket. Yeah, we buy lottery tickets. I, my mom, my parents have always bought them. You know, I, I bought them last year when I got out of the hospital and then we just bought them today just before we, you know, sat down to talk to you. It is a great uh, gift to give back to your community so that people like yourself can uh, can benefit from it. And then you go and you pay it forward. Yeah. And, and I mean, really, nobody knows, like, you know, all of a sudden you might need that care, you know. And, uh, you know, I thought I was, you know, would one day maybe get hurt with fireworks. And, you know, it's, yeah. here it's not a firework. It's a race car that hits me. You know, and and that's just that's just the deal. You know, you could use it. You know, uh, somebody could use it, and you would never know. Yeah. You know, so that you know, it's good to know that the the hospital and the foundation is there and ready. You know, ready for you, right, in case you need it. And John, that takes us right back to how you started your story. You were just doing the job you'd done so many times, taking care of the pyrotechnics yep. at Saratoga. Basically, just yep. doing your job that you would do every time, and you wouldn't even have known. You didn't even know what happened until you woke up in the hospital. No, so basically, no. We have to remember that. Yeah, and and there were so many people that you know we had a we had a, a GoFundMe page that had started up, and there was a ton of people that donated there, um, and and you know just all the love and support. I got I got messages through Facebook, you know, just random people saying, "Hey, how are you doing?" Um, so it, you know, there was a lot of people that you know, helped me get help me get here today there were a lot of people pulling for you yeah including sure. i've got my hand up i was following your story as i said being a bit of a track rat and hearing about the the rarity of such an event yeah no to happen sure. like that um i'm so glad you're well uh thank you for being such a great representative and champion of this oh yeah no problem in your recovery and my best to your wife and to to little Caden. yeah tell him you. i said hi i will sure for Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah and a very sad day for music fans, a tragic day for Rush fans. Neil Peart, drummer of the Canadian rock band Rush, the legend himself, has died at 67, according to a representative for Getty Lee. Uh, Neil Peart had been diagnosed with brain cancer. That is the breaking news in just the past few minutes. Uh, more on our global news at 1.30. Now we pivot to the major issues on some of the bridges across the region this morning because of the snow. 
Ice bombs, again, falling from cables. Not one, but two bridges in the Lower Mainland have this problem. Uh, the Alex Fraser Bridge was closed uh, for quite some time this morning, causing traffic chaos. Two lanes southbound now open, one lane northbound. We bring in Janet Brown, Global News Senior Reporter, on this story with more. Hi, Janet. Good afternoon, Jody. And I think a lot of people are wondering why... Every time it snows, whether it's moderate or heavy, we have these issues on our local bridges with these ice bombs falling. Uh, we are getting reports that two vehicles, two windshields, were badly damaged this morning on the Alex Freezer Bridge. That's why the route was closed in both directions. Things have sort of settled down now. Temperatures are warming up a little bit. Rain is moving into the region. We're getting reports of it in Delta and Cloverdale, which is good news, of course. Uh, but yeah, this issue of ice bombs. Um, the route is still really busy, Jody. It's really congested because when they closed the bridge, a lot of people were on the approach to the bridge at either end, north and south. And also we are getting reports of a similar situation over at the Portman Bridge. One lane in the southbound direction towards Surrey with the 152nd exit. Uh, it is closed because of an incident. And whether that involves an ice bomb or not, the Transportation Ministry says it does not know at this point, but it does involve one vehicle. Now, the explanation as to why we keep getting these ice bomb situations. I talked with uh, Ken Nash from the Transportation Ministry just a few minutes ago. He says there are two different systems for clearing the snow and the ice from the cables on the Alex Fraser and the Portman. The Portman Bridge, because it's a newer structure, it has an automated system, Jody, to bring down the cables when there is snow and ice. Over at the right. Alex Fraser Bridge, it has to be done manually. They have to get rope access, cruise up on the cables to release the cables to bring down the snow and the ice. And because it was too windy, he says, they couldn't do that. Here's more of what he has to say. Between the Portman and the, the Alex Fraser Bridge, there's, there's two uh, different um, systems in place uh, to, to mitigate the accumulation of, of uh, slush on the cables. On the uh, Portman Bridge, uh, the system has been fully automated, uh, so it allows uh, crews to release uh, the, the cable callers uh, remotely. Uh, on the Alex Fraser Bridge, there is uh, a similar technical um, release of uh, cable callers. However, it requires uh, rope access technicians to uh, be on site at uh, the, the towers uh, to uh, manually, manually release the cables. and. Uh, uh, for safety, uh, the uh, rope access technicians cannot work at uh, that elevated height uh, in high winds. And Jody, rope access I asked technician, him. that sounds like a job I do not ever want to have to do. Oh, that sounds dangerous. Absolutely. Uh, so I asked Mr. Nash, well, why don't we have the same system on both bridges? I mean, clearly an automated right. system is much better than a manual system. And he said, yes, good question. You know, we are going to be looking at that. Obviously, there's cost involved of changing over the system, but it's something he says we will be looking at. But why are they only looking at it now? I don't know. Uh, the other question is That's the is key to here, though, Janet. I, I've got to jump in with that one because that's the question that you and I, and, and I heard your discussion with Jill Bennett earlier because it's dangerous and it's frightening. The fact that this only comes up when we're in a crisis mode situation on these bridges is incredibly frustrating. How the ministry can't be looking at this in the off-season, if you will, given the fact that these snow events are fairly rare. 
And the Portman Bridge is a new structure, but we still have right. the ice bomb problem, even though they have the yeah. automated caller system. We never had this problem with the old Portman Bridge. A lot of people are no. pointing that one out. Uh, how come we didn't have that uh, with the old bridge, but we have it with the new bridge? It's a problem. It's a serious problem because, of course, people could get hurt. Uh, the ministry is telling people to look at the Drive BC website. But, you know, as I pointed out, you can't look at that when you're driving. You know, you no. need advance warning of what's happening. And, and motorists get that through listening to our radio station. So it's important to have up-to-date information out there for motorists. So, But as I say, uh, you know, Jody, hopefully with the uh, weather warming up just a few degrees, it's going to make all the difference for the afternoon commute. And that is a key, right? How are people going to get over the bridges if we still have this continuing problem? It hasn't totally been cleared up, this ice bomb situation. Jill Bennett is telling us from Global News that there is still slush coming down onto the roadway on the Alex Fraser Bridge. So hopefully they get things sorted out before the commute begins at about three o'clock or so this afternoon. Well, Janet Brown, as you said, uh, glad that the temperatures are rising. So they're slush bombs rather than ice bombs. We had a listener call us earlier today uh, recounting a terrifying time crossing the bridge uh, where an ice bomb literally came through his windshield on the passenger side while going across the Alex Fraser Bridge. Uh, this wow. needs to be recognized as a as a public safety issue in a major, major mm -hmm. way. Thank you for doing the due diligence with the ministry. We really appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you, Jody.